Volume One, Chapter Two, Part One of Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in May two thousand and eight. Volume One, Chapter Two, Disappointment and Hope, Prose and Poetry. When Jane Melville told her cousin that her uncle had been always kind and always reasonable, she expressed her own opinion, for she had loved and honoured him so much that she felt no hardship in doing everything he wished. But no one else in the house or in the neighbourhood would have endorsed that opinion. When the rumour spread far and wide that he had disinherited his nieces, in the expectation that the education he had given them would enable them to provide handsomely for themselves, the servants and workpeople about shook their heads, and said it was I weel kenned that the old laird had a bee in his bonnet, while the class with whom Mr. Hogarth associated on more equal terms declared that this last eccentricity of affection, for it was all done out of pure love, surpassed all his other oddities with regard to the girls, which had long been the talk of the whole country. They had, as Jane sadly confessed, made but few friends. Their uncle's reasonable prejudices extended to morning visits, which he called a frivolous waste of time, and he had a similar dislike to evening parties, not on account of a puritanic disapproval of dancing, or of young people of different sexes meeting and having opportunities of getting acquainted with each other, but the hours were so irrational, and the conventional dress so unbecoming and dangerous to health, that he had prohibited Jane and Elsie from accepting the invitations that were showered on them when they had given up lessons, and were supposed to be ready to come out. If people would meet at six, and break up before twelve, and wear dresses fashioned like their ordinary attire, Mr. Hogarth saw no objection to evening parties. He had invited the neighbours to such a party, and mentioned in his note of invitation the conditions on which it was to be attended. A good many had accepted, partly from curiosity and partly from a wish to be friendly, but in spite of really good arrangements and an excellent supper, the party was not such a success as to be repeated often by Mr. Hogarth, and was never imitated by any of his guests. The Misses Melville danced well, walked well, and rode admirably. They spent several hours every day in the open air, had learnt to swim and to shoot both with bow and arrow and with rifle. Their physical education had been excellent, and had probably saved Elsie's life, for she was extremely delicate when young, but had gained strength as she grew up. Their book education had been chiefly conducted by an old gentleman, who had lived for eight years in their house as tutor, and they had spent several winters in Edinburgh to attend classes and lectures. No money, no care, and no time had been spared on their education, so that it was rather a pity that, in the eyes of the world, it was so unsatisfactory when completed. Both had gone through the same routine, for Mr. Hogarth seemed to think that education made characters instead of merely drawing out what there is in the original material, and he was disappointed that the uniformity of the training had not produced two characters more similar than those of Jane and Elsie. Jane's tendencies were to the practical, and the positive, and she gladly availed herself of her uncle's whim to educate her like a man of business, regretting none of the accomplishments and showy acquirements which are too apt to be considered the principal part of female education. Expecting that she would be left in possession of considerable property, and virtually the guardian of her younger sister, she saw a fitness and propriety in her being taught the management of money, the science of agriculture, the care of an establishment, and the accurate keeping of accounts. Elsie would have preferred another training, but it was not given to her, and though she made but a lame attempt to follow Jane's footsteps, and acquired only a superficial knowledge of what her sister was the perfect mistress of, her uncle believed that, bad as she was, she would have been much worse if she had not been forced into rational studies. 
Though she was not a marvel of solidity, she still had as good a knowledge of accounts, general information, history, and science, as is possessed by many boys who get on very well in business or in professions, when once set fairly to work. Mr. Hogarth had no great opinion of the value of teaching languages, and thought that a knowledge of things was of far more importance than a knowledge of the names of things. The girls had learnt, however, a good deal of Latin and Greek from Mr. Wilson, their tutor, who thought it a pity that Jane's fine abilities should not have a classical education. And he had induced Mr. Hogarth to agree to it by the argument that these languages are invaluable for the ready and correct understanding of all scientific terms. French and Italian the girls themselves were anxious to learn, and as they had been promised a continental tour some fine summer, their uncle thought they might be useful acquirements then, so they had lessons from the best masters in Edinburgh, and profited by them. And here, for the first time, Elsie's progress had been far greater than Jane's. Mr. Hogarth had himself spent a good deal of time in his youth in France, but he had a higher opinion of French society than of French literature, and he thought that from the lips of brilliant Parisian women they would learn more of the spirit of the language and of the people than from the books they studied in classes or read at home. Elsie had a natural taste for music, and a remarkably sweet voice in speaking, which, if it had been cultivated, would have made her an excellent singer. But her uncle was sure that to indulge her with a musical education would only weaken her mind. Mr. Hogarth had seen no good come of music. A taste for singing and a fine voice had been the ruin of thousands. They had been most mischievous to Elsie's own father, and they had been the chief fascinations which had won upon his dear sister Mary. She and George Melville had sung duets together, and from that had been led to try a duet through life, and a very sad and inharmonious life they had made of it. So poor Elsie's natural tastes were discouraged and thwarted, and after the positive lessons were over, and her education was said to be finished, she felt vacuity and ennui when Jane rejoiced in full employment. The housekeeping was ostensibly taken by the sisters in alternate weeks, but though Jane relinquished the keys for the stated period, she never relinquished the superintendence. She remembered what Elsie forgot, she looked forward where Elsie would have scrambled in the best way she could through the passing hour, and constantly thinking for her and remedying her blunders. Elsie was apt to forget that any responsibility rested on herself. Nothing in their singular training was considered odder than that, while they were educated in a more masculine manner than most boys, they were obliged at the same time to make a greater proportion of their own clothes than any girls of their own rank or circumstances, and that they had been carefully and systematically taught to make them in the best manner possible. The only instructions which they had received from one of their own sex had been given to them by an excellent plain needlewoman, a first-class dressmaker, and a fashionable milliner. And in the last two branches Elsie's taste had made her excel her sister even more than in French and Italian. At the time of their uncle's death, Jane was twenty-three years old, and Elsie two years younger. They had but very recently given up regular study, for their uncle thought girls were far too soon finished, as it is called, and turned out in a very incomplete state of mental and moral development. He would not let them think themselves educated till they had seen more of the world than could be done in Edinburgh, which was a city he had rather a contempt for, as a mere provincial capital, too superstitious and narrow-minded for his taste. Paris and London were the schools for men, and therefore, according to his notions, for women also. But when the time arrived for the tour on the continent, and the winter in London which had been promised to the girls, he felt his health had given way, though he had no positive illness, and delayed leaving home till the following year, when he hoped to be able to enjoy it, and to show all he meant to show to the girls without fatigue or indifference. If he had been able to go with them on the previous year, as had been arranged, he would probably have left his fortune otherwise, 
for Mr. Dalzell's attentions had only been of recent date. As the news of the will spread, every one said they really ought to call on the Melvilles, poor things, but no one was in a hurry to perform so disagreeable a duty. Mrs. Dalzell was so astounded by the change that was made in her son's prospects, and so embarrassed lest she should be looked to for assistance in the present urgent necessities of the girls, that though she had been by far the most intimate and cordial of their friends, she was not the first to visit them. Three or four matrons had come and gone, who had made but short calls, and who had taken refuge in commonplace inquiries as to how and when Mr. Hogarth had been first taken ill, and at what hour he died, but had given very little sympathy and no advice. The minister of the parish had called, as in duty bound, on the day after the funeral, and surprised both Jane and Elsie by a style of conversation very different from any they had ever heard from his lips. In his previous visits to Cross Hall he had never talked of anything but the weather, and crops, and the news of the neighbourhood. His tastes, his studies, his politics and his faith were so opposite to those of Mr. Hogarth, that there was no safety, and likely to be no pleasure, in conversation that left the neutral ground he took. But now, when the eccentric and sceptical Mr. Hogarth had crowned all his sins by an act of such injustice to his nieces, and they were in affliction from bereavement and poverty, he wished to give them spiritual comfort and to teach them something that he knew had been omitted in their education. But he couched his consolation in language that seemed strangely unfamiliar to the girls he addressed, and when he spoke of crosses to be borne, that God has made crooks in every lot that no man may make straight, when he dwelt upon the temptations of riches, and the difficulty with which the rich can enter the kingdom of heaven, and hoped that his young friends would see the hand of God in this trying dispensation, and would follow humbly his leading, Jane, who hoped to conquer her difficulties, and did not mean to succumb to them, did not feel much comforted, or edified, by the well-meant exhortation. Both girls felt pained, too, by the reflections he cast on their late uncle, and by the warning to be prepared for sudden death, as this had been an instance of the master coming when no one was looking for him, and when the loins were not girt, nor the light burning. Both girls had loved their uncle, and even though Elsie felt that he had often been hard to her, and that the will was not a just one, she could not bear the idea that Mr. Harry suggested, of his probable place in the future state, while Jane felt indignant. They had both hoped for some help and comfort from Mrs. Dalzell, but when her visit was so long delayed, their expectations fell considerably. Jane had become so tired of the useless kind of condolence that was offered, that she determined to ask for advice from the next person who came, and that happened to be Mrs. Dalzell. She spoke a little more freely and kindly to the girls than other people had done, but still she was keeping serious difficulties at arm's length, when Jane turned rather sharply round on her with the abrupt question, "'What do you think we ought to do, Mrs. Dalzell?' "'Indeed I cannot say, Miss Melville. This most unaccountable conduct of Mr. Hogarth's has taken us all by surprise, so much that I can think of nothing but overturning the will. I am sure when William told me of the extraordinary disposition of the property, I felt—I cannot tell you how I felt— such a shocking thing to leave all to a son whom nobody ever heard of before, and to leave his sister's children destitute. You certainly have a claim on the heir, for a maintenance at least. He should be made to refund a part of the spoil." "'He would, if he could. But it is forbidden.' "'There is no help in that way,' said Jane. "'But employment, Mrs. Dalzell. Can you suggest any employment for us?' Mrs. Dalzell hesitated. "'Mrs. Chalmers is in need of a finishing governess for Emma and Robina but I am afraid neither of you two young ladies would suit her, for we cannot get music-masters here, and one must have a governess who has a good knowledge of music. If Mr. Maxwell had not just engaged a tutor for his boys, 
"'You might perhaps have undertaken that place, Miss Melville.' "'I think I might,' said Jane. "'Would it not be pleasanter, if we have to take situations, to go a distance?' said Elsie. "'I do not think I could bear you or myself to be near Cross Hall when everything is so changed.' "'It would be more agreeable, I have no doubt, Miss Elsie. And I cannot help thinking that in such a place as Edinburgh or Glasgow, where there are masters and mistresses for everything, you could get on by having classes, or engaging as teachers at some institution. In the country we want governesses and schoolmistresses to know everything a girl ought to learn. "'Is there nothing but teaching that we can do?' said Jane. "'Well, you know there is nothing that a gentleman can turn to in such circumstances as yours but teaching, and I would be very glad indeed to see you both in nice, comfortable situations. By the by, Miss Elsie, I copied into my album the very sweet verses you sent me, and have brought them back to you. Are they really your own? William says he thinks they are. Yes, said Elsie. They are original. Well, I could not have thought it. They are extremely pretty. By the by, said Jane, do you not know Miss Thompson, Mrs. Dalzell? My uncle always spoke of her with respect and admiration, as an instance of the skill and success with which a woman can conduct masculine avocations. A gentlewoman farmer, and a thriving one. I wish we had known her. Oh, yes, I do know Miss Thompson. Of course we are not exactly in the same position, we being proprietors, while she is only a farmer. But she is a most excellent and estimable woman in her way, though she is a bit of a character. She is now growing old, and not so active as she has been. She is said to be a benevolent and a kind-hearted, as well as a clever woman," said Jane. Oh, yes. And well she may be liberal, for she has made money, and has not the status to keep up that old country families must maintain. I wonder if she would engage me as her helper, and teach me farming. I know a good deal of theoretical agricultural chemistry. Will you be so good as to give me a letter of introduction to her? I should feel greatly obliged to you." Mrs. Dalzell willingly granted this small request, and felt much disposed to magnify its importance. It would be a good thing if, without any trouble or sacrifice on her own part, she could aid her dear young friends by bringing them into contact with a person who was more able to further their views than herself. She was sure that Miss Thompson was the very person to apply to, for, of course, she would take an interest in a young lady so unfortunately situated. It was so well thought of on Miss Melville's part, but then Miss Melville was always so quick and sensible. The letter of introduction was written, and then Mrs. Dalzell took leave. Next day Elsie was languidly reading the local weekly journal, when she came upon a paragraph which related to themselves. Mr. Hogarth's will was described and commented on. There was congratulation for the heir, and commiseration for the nieces. "'Oh, Jane,' said she, "'is it not dreadful to be brought before the public in this way?' Everybody must be talking about us, and, of course, everybody has got hold of the story of William Dalzell and you, too. I am glad they did not put that in the newspapers, at any rate. Every one will think that he gave you up, and will fancy you are so distressed about it. We cannot help either what people think, or what they say. I do not wonder at the courier making a long paragraph on the subject, for they have not had such an interesting piece of local news since Mr. Fisher committed suicide. I do not like the appearance of my own name in print," said Elsie. It is a very pretty name, nevertheless, and would look as well on the title-page of a book as any I know. Only in a newspaper you do not like it," said Jane. I must bid you good-bye for a few hours now, for I am going to Miss Thompson's. I am going to ride, and will not be very long. End of Volume 1, Chapter 2, Part 1 This recording is in the public domain.